I don't know about you, but I think we're overdue for this. Okay, welcome in everybody to the deep dive. It is part six of the Kings of Compromise. My name is Tim. It is youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. If you do me the solid favor, click the subscribe button, click the notification bell so that you can get notified every time we go live on your smart device. Hey, if you're watching in the future, I'm delivering this content on the heels of a very contentious midterm election in the United States. And I'll be first to admit that we get too caught up in politics and putting our hope in politicians. Now, usually that's what you say when you're a politician lost, but a lot of elections went the right way, I think, and some went the wrong way, but that's for another show, if you know what I mean. Here's the good news. We could not be in a better place in our talk on 1 Kings chapter 5 because this chapter is going to remind us that the most important thing we can do as God's people is not vote and not just be good citizens, but build God's house. That's what you're made for. That's what we're here for. That's what Christ is doing. Let's partner with him because we're not of this world. We have a home in heaven. Welcome to the Kings of Compromise. Okay, now if you will notice that I am standing here today because I, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure out how to feel comfortable in the studio. So I'm going to stand and I feel like I talk and think better on my feet anyway. <laughs> so Kings of Compromise part six 1 Kings chapter 5, right to the Bible cam, uh, and a short prayer. Father God, thank you for the chance to hear your word, and I pray it speaks into our spirits and into our hearts and changes us and makes us more like Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so what we're in in 1 Kings chapter 5 is the preparations for the building of the temple because in 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon's going to build the temple, and I am really excited about that content too because when we look at the temple, we're going to see a picture of Jesus Christ and a picture of what God has intended for man and himself and how we're supposed to dwell with him in harmony. But here in 1 Kings chapter 5, Solomon does what every good builder does. He gathers resources. And the way that he gathers resources is by leveraging some of the relationships that his father had um, when he was alive. And one of those relationships is with the king of Tyre, a guy named um, Hiram. Now, before we get to the content I want to remind you that this is a tremendous shift in gears in Solomon's life. Like, so far, what has Solomon done? Well, he's killed off all David's bad enemies. <laughs> that was not so great. He asked for wisdom. He got wisdom. He started making great judgments over the people's lives in 1 Kings 3. The nations start hearing about how wise this, this kid is. And then he appoints his officials. Last time we were together, we talked about the administration of his um office, uh, the gift of administration that was alive and well in Solomon's life. But now we're shifting gears to really the point of his life. This is the aim of Solomon's existence. And believe it or not, it's the aim of your existence because Solomon is the son of David whom God spoke to David about that he would build a house for God. I want to show you this um, on the screen here, because it's the most important thing about 
Solomon's life. First Chronicles chapter 17, verse 11. When your days are fulfilled, this is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Look at verse 12. He shall build a house for me. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This was Solomon's destiny. This was spoken to Solomon before Solomon was, I think, born, if, as far as I can remember. And it was definitely spoken to David about Solomon before Solomon was an adult, before he was king. How cool is that to live with this sense of divine destiny over your life? Well, guess what? You've got a divine destiny as well. By the way, this doesn't just apply to Solomon in terms of what God said through David. It also applies to Solomon in what God said through Moses way back in Deuteronomy 12, verse uh, 10. But when you go over to the land of Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, that's an important point right there, when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution, and you'll present it all to the Lord. Okay, he's talking about the temple there. Like when God gives you rest, then God's going to give you a place where you will bring your offerings and your sacrifices. This is where you will meet with God. So notice first and foremost that Solomon's job is to build the house. And that's why the title of this talk is the wisdom, the wisdom to build God or the wisdom of building God's house. What are you giving your life for? What are you giving your life to? Are you defining your life by your career? Are you defining your life by your income? by your financial status, by your generational name, by your family's name, by what you've, I don't know, been taught to believe that this is what life is about. If you're a Christian, everything changes. If you're a Christ follower, and I, and, and I mean, the, and I use the name Christian on, on purpose because the very name Christ is in the term Christian. Your very name of the, uh, as a Christian reminds you that Christ is your defining reality. You are made for him to do what he wants to do in this world. And if you're giving your life to anything other than building his house, ultimately, now again, that doesn't mean <laughs> you do sit in the church and pray all day, that you give up all your money and give it all to the church, that you do nothing else except work on the church. No, 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 that's not, not what I'm saying. But, but if you don't see that your life Everything around your life, your family, your things, your money, your whole life is to be used by God to build a house for people to meet with him. Then you're going to be confused as a Christian for as long as you live. And Solomon is a picture of the true Christ because Solomon is the son of David. He has chosen to build God's house. Uh, this is who Jesus ultimately is. He is the son of David and he has chosen to build God's house. And God's house is no longer a building it is a people. You are Christ's house. And as a member of Christ's house, you are called to continue the building of Christ's house. So let's go to the Bible, Cam, and read it. Verse 1, chapter 5, 1 Kings. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he had heard that he had anointed him king in the place of his father, for Hiram always loved David. Okay, so right there, there is a relationship. David and Hiram have this friendship. Actually, if you go back to 2 Samuel, you will see that Hiram actually sent Seder to David so that David could build his palace. Well, now 
Hiram, David's friend, hears that his friend's son is now in charge of the kingdom of Israel, and so he reaches out to him. By the way, that is a super, super cool moment. David has such a great relationship with this guy that when David is gone and his son is ruling in his stead, um, the guy reaches out to David's son. How important it is to make sure that we maintain great relationships even with unbelievers and different kinds of people because they can pay benefits to our progeny. They can pay benefits to the future of our family. Uh, just just a, a small notation there. But anyway, verse two, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord has given me rest on every side. There is the, uh, neither adversary nor misfortune. Uh, and he says, so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David, my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. couple of points I want to make about this. Number one, the first thing that we see is that Solomon is well aware that who he is is because of what God did in David who came before him. And how amazingly countercultural is that today? In a culture where everyone gets to decide who they are, according to their feelings, according to society's terms, according to their generational you know, expression or experience. I'm Gen Z, I'm Gen X, I'm Gen Y, I'm Gen Millennial, I'm greater boomer, whatever, silent, you know, all those kind of things. You know, we have all of these definitions of our lives and people will define themselves by their gender now. They'll define themselves by their sexuality. They'll define themselves by so many other things. Here's what Solomon does, totally countercultural. He says... I'm the result of what David did. And the people who came before me, the people who served God before me were instrumental in getting me to where I am today. This, my friends, is your, this has got to be your attitude about life. If you're a Christ follower, you've got to remember that those who came before you were instrumental in getting you to where you are. You cannot disparage the past. We live in a culture, again, disparages the past. Everything that came before me was racist. Everything that came before me was wrong. Everything that came before me was evil. No, that's not true. That's not true. You are uh, selectively choosing only the bad parts about the history before you. And by the way, if we did that with your life, your life wouldn't look so hot either, right? So you've got to have an appreciation. Christian, I'm, I'm imploring you. You've got to have a, an appreciation for the people who came before you because they fought battles you didn't fight. They kept the faith when you weren't here. And you are here because they kept the faith. And that's exactly what Solomon acknowledges here first. David wanted to do this. He didn't do it because he was a man of war. Oh, and by the way, those wars, the Lord put his enemies under his feet. That's what he says here in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse four, the Lord put, uh, verse three, actually, the Lord put all of his enemies under the soles of his feet, and now the Lord has given me rest. In other words, David got victory through the Lord, and now I've got peace through the Lord. Likewise, Christian, you have peace with God through the gospel which came to you, through those who fought for the faith before you. Please have that understanding, because then you have a bunch of humility, and it's not always about you. And when it's not always about you, you're happier. <laughs> the people who focus on themselves are the most miserable people on the earth. And to have an appreciation and gratitude for the people who came before you is healthy. And then to have a, ver a vision and a passion to help people beyond you is also healthy, mentally healthy. And Solomon acknowledges, 
God has given me peace through David, and now he has given me this opportunity. And the peace that I have with God is not for me to just sit and rest on my laurels and just be like kicking back and enjoying pina coladas and the beach for the rest of my life. No, the peace that God has given me is for productivity, is for producing, is for building. And that's what Solomon acknowledges. He says in verse five, I now intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to my father, David. Now look at this next line, because this is so powerful. He says, as the Lord said to David, my father. What is Solomon saying here? I live, so important, I am living a prophetic life. I am living a destined life. God has called me to do this. Solomon knows that he has this prophetic word over his life. He quotes God's word to David. Your son shall build the house for my name. And what a profound way to live. I'm, I'm here because God put me here. And, and I want to tell you, in Jesus Christ, that's true for you. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. You are where you are by divine design. I believe that wholeheartedly. Just as Solomon was put on the face of the earth to build God's house, so you are called in Christ to build God's house. And particularly for younger generations, my heart goes out to you because you are not, you are given almost every pleasure, but no purpose. You are given almost every opportunity, but no objective goal and destination in life. If you lack purpose, if you lack direction, get a hold of God's word because it will give you direction. It will give you purpose. It will make clear to you what God has made you for. You are made for his glory. You are made for his purposes. You are made to help others grow and develop in Christ. And nothing, no greater gift on the earth can be given than the gift of knowing that you are called to serve God's purposes. So he reaches out to Hiram and look what it says here. Now, therefore, command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut from me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants and such wages as you said. For you know that there's no one among you who cuts uh, cedar or timber like the Sidonians. Okay, so uh, let's talk about some contextual insight here. Hiram was a very successful king of Tyre. Tyre was the lead nation of the Sidonian or Phoenician Empire. He actually came to prominence at the same time that David did. So these guys are kind of like in tandem growing their kingdoms. David, of course, dies. He must have been a little bit older than Hiram. Hiram is still on the throne of Tyre. And the people of Tyre are known for what? He says it right there on the text, how to cut timber. Nobody is like you. And this is actually historically true. We know this from archaeological research that the Sidonians or the Phoenicians knew the value of um, uh, cedar. The, the cedar, uh, but first, cedar was a very desirable material because it was very uh, engravable. It was also, it smells great. We know this till, still to this day. Many, many closets are made of cedar. Many chests are made of cedar because they smell good. And they also resist moths and insects because of that, that uh, fragrance. And they also resist dry rot, but they're also good for carving. So what you're seeing here is that Solomon wants cedar because he knows that it is beautiful, it is fragrant, it is strong, it lasts, and you can also decorate it. You can engrave it. You can make it beautiful um, through uh, skillful artsmanship. What is Solomon doing? He's saying, I want the house of God. I want the house of God to be beautiful. That's what he's basically saying. And another key text to this 
another key part to this text is in verse 7, because look what it says in verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over his, this great people. So the first thing I want you to see here is that, that Hiram acknowledges that this kid knows what he's doing. This is, this is not some Johnny-come-lately. This is not a prideful kid right now, at least as far as, as this far into Solomon's story. This is a good guy. He knows how to talk to people. He knows how to talk to me. He knows who he is. He's got some humility. He doesn't act like the universe revolves around him. He knows his place in the story, and he acknowledges those who came before him, and then he treats me with respect. Can I tell you in your life, some of you, you're kicking against the goads in your life. You're kicking against all the opportunities in your life because you never have a humble attitude with where you are, and then you never have respect for other people. Nothing Nothing is more damaging to you than to treat other people with disrespect, to treat other people as, as tools or objects to be used for your advancement. The way to approach life in a healthy way, in a productive way, is to say, God has me on this earth to serve his purposes. And when I am engaged in that, every person that can help me do that matters and I need to approach them with wisdom and discretion. Wise leadership creates strong relationships, even with unbelievers. Please don't be argumentative with unbelievers. Look, we can be argumentative about the values of unbelievers amongst ourselves. <laughs> but when it comes to dealing with unbelievers, as Christians, we've got to be wise. We've got to be We've got to have, as Colossians says, our, our uh, conversation has to be seasoned with salt. We should speak wisely to those who don't believe. Even when we respond to people's questions about our faith, 1 Peter chapter 3 says this, do this with gentleness and respect. Treat unbelievers with respect. Hey, if the person that you live next to didn't vote for who you voted for, treat them with respect. Be careful to speak toward them in a way that is representative of the heart of Christ. You, you, you know that they're unbelievers, so you are maybe the only Christian they will ever hear. You're maybe the only voice of a Christian they've ever experienced. How are you doing with that? Speak wisely. That's exactly what Solomon um, uh, uh, exemplifies for us here. And look what it says. Hiram is impressed, and then verse 8, he sent to Solomon saying, I've heard the message that you have sent to me, and look at the response. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress and timber. Wow, what a way to build your life. Like just respect and humility. Respect and humility goes a long way. Respect, humility, and let me add honor. Honor for others. He doesn't demean Hiram. He doesn't say, gimme, gimme, gimme. He doesn't have this handout mentality because he even says, I'm gonna set the wages that, I'm gonna pay the wages that you set. I'll pay for it. Just, just let's do business here and help me get done what, what I believe God has put in my life to get done. And so Sol Hiram is so impressed. I'm ready to do all that you desire. Verse nine, my servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon and I will make it into rafts to go by sea to the place you direct and I will have them broken up there and you shall receive it and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. Uh, and we'll stop there for a second. And all you want to see here is that Solomon gets everything basically that he asked for, except that one thing that Hiram does very shrewdly is he says, look, uh, don't pay my laborers, just give them food. I, I think that that was just discretion on the part of Hiram to say, if my laborers start getting paychecks from Solomon, they're going to desert me and they're going to go to Solomon's kingdom. 
Anyway, just another notation of the text. Verse 10, it says, So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. And then Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave to Hiram by year by, this year by year. And then the commentary is what I want you to see in verse 12, because this is how the Old Testament speaks. We always get these little one-verse commentaries. How should we feel about what has come before verse 11, uh, verse 12? How should we feel about this conversation? Here's how we should feel about it. Verse 12, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So you have the commentary of the biblical writer. This is wisdom. Wisdom seeks peaceful negotiations, even with unbelievers, seeks peaceful relationships with those in the shared secular economy of the world. Wisdom seeks to honor others, even if they don't believe like us. Wisdom seeks to be humble servants of God's purposes on the earth. (laughs) All of these things are so countercultural to the messages that are drilled into our young people, into our generation. You are repeatedly taught, hate the past. It's all about you. Live for yourself. Seize the day. Get your get yourself ahead. You know, um, bust your tail and, and, and build your name, rep, brand, blah, 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 blah. All this, all this satanic messaging. And I say it's satanic because that's exactly how Satan lived. Satan, can, can we do this for a second on the Bible cam? I like to take little divergencies, divergences on the Bible cam. And I just want you to see something here about Satan's mindset. It is recorded for us in Isaiah 14 because Isaiah 14 is talking um, about the uh, king of Babylon. And then he starts talking about Satan. It, it, you know that he's talking about Satan because he starts calling him Daystar, son of the dawn. Uh, he starts referring to him uh, a way in a way that doesn't make sense for a human king. Because look what he says about Satan in verse 13 of Isaiah 14. You said in your heart, I will, set, I will ascend to the heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in as far reaches of the north. I will, send, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Then the verse 15, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far places of the pit. Those who see it, you stare, see you stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overflew? So basically God's saying, look, when you seek self-promotion, you end up with divine demotion. When you seek self-promotion, you end up with divine demotion. That's exactly how this world sets so many young people up for failure promote yourself, advance yourself, make yourself the star of everything in your life. And that's how you get ahead. And other people are just a means to the end. No, friend, nothing could be further from the truth. Wisdom seeks to humbly acknowledge uh, your place in the story, humbly and gratefully thank God for the people who came before you respectfully and honorably approach others who don't believe like you and also are involved in the economic system as you and then pay them what they're worth and do business with dignity and respect for others. That is what verse 12 is telling us here. There was more peace as a result of this wise approach of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 5 uh, than there was beforehand. 
How do we treat people? How do we act as God's people? So important in the eyes of the world. Then the rest of the chapter is just a summation about something else that is very common to the kingdom of Solomon is that he keeps going back and forth between following the Lord and also doing some kind of questionable things because it says he forced, verse 13, he forced draft labor. A drafted forced labor out of all Israel and the draft numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be in Lebanon a month and two months at home. Uh, Adonai was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officials who were over the work, who had charge of the people who had carried the work at the king's command. They quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon build, Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebel did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. couple things I want to point out about this text. Once again, we are seeing that as much as Solomon has this wise approach to life, he's also breaking some of God's commands. So he's enslaving some of his people. He's drafting forced laborers. He's starting to enslave the people of Israel. Not, not good. There's always failures. There's always some you know, mitigation between following the Lord and some measure of failure in every generation. Solomon is no different. Uh, also, just one other thing that I want to point out from the text is verse 17 says, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. This is important because it's showing us that there was a great cost to the, the, the temple. This is not a cheap endeavor. And I would just like to say this about where we're going with this text is that whatever God builds and whatever we build for God should be done with great cost. It should be done with beautiful things, dressed stone, as it says this. And by the way, it was the foundation. These would be stones that you wouldn't even see. Nobody would see these stones because they'd be the foundation stones. And if you go to Israel today, you can still see the foundation stones of Herod's temple, not Solomon's temple, but Herod's temple. And they are so impressive. And they're so huge. And they're so in, in, um, intricately placed together. You, you go there, you wonder how the heck did they get those stones in place? But nonetheless, the point is this, God's house is worth the cost. God's house is worth the effort. And this also plays out in our church buildings. And I, I am a big uh, fan of taking care of God's house and the place where we meet. So God's house is the people and the people meet in a building and the, and the building shouldn't be shoddy. The building should be decorated. The building should have a good look to it, a, a presentable appeal to it. People should drive by the building where we meet and say, that looks nice. I want to go there. And, and that's what we see here in the first temple that Solomon builds. It's going to be costly. It's going to be decorative. It's going to smell nice. It's going to last. It's going to attract worshipers to God. Look, it's a disgrace in my opinion when we do not invest in the kingdom of God, when we do not invest in our church buildings and our, our houses of worship because it tells the world we don't care. We don't care about what this place looks like. Oh, this is just where we meet with God. No, no, no. This is the place where we meet with God. It should be glorious. It should be exceptional. It should be clean. It should smell nice. It should look nice and it should be attractive to unbelievers. Anyway, that's the text. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about it. Okay, I didn't even do the bumper for through the text, but it doesn't matter anymore. The key verse that I want us to acknowledge here in this text is verse 4, that Solomon's humility here and wisdom is represented in his sense of a prophetic divine calling to build God's house. What does he say? The Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. That's because of the people who came before me. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, uh, your son will build a house for me. So, 
Solomon is a man of peace, but he is a man of peace who understands that his peace is for a purpose. And your peace with God is for a purpose. God has, through Jesus Christ, given you peace. Jesus is our true David, who defeated our enemies and placed them under his feet, okay, so that we could have those same enemies placed under our feet, right? There was a moment in Luke 11 where the disciples come back to Jesus because they cast out demons. They're so excited. Demons are subjected to us in your name. And Jesus is like, yeah, I gave you authority over every serpent and scorpion and, and nothing on this earth shall harm you. You have authority over the demonic spirits, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places through the victory of Jesus Christ. And most importantly, you have peace with God. That is probably the most important part about our Christian relationship. Our Christian life is that we have peace with God. He's no longer against us in, uh, because of our sins. Our sins have been washed away, taken away, paid for at the blood of Christ. And now we have, we have peace with God. But Solomon, whose name is peace or peaceable, is a representation of who we are in Christ, is a representation of Christ, the true son of David, who provides peace for us so that we could live out our purpose in God. A couple things about your life that I want to make sure that you see that I see in this text. First thing, it's all God's materials. Remember we talked about the cedar of Lebanon and how it was really wonderful wood and it was... Um, fragrant and good for carving. Well, there's a great passage in Psalm 104. I'll put this up on the screen. Verse 16, it says, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. So this is really cool because Solomon goes to Hiram for cedar, but the Lord has already planted those trees that Hiram's going to give to Solomon. <laughs> Here's how you got to see economics. The whole earth belongs to God. You might think that unbelievers prosper. They're, they're just bad stewards of God's possessions. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea. God owns you. There's nothing, I forget who said it, but it's a great uh, phrase. There's nothing in this whole universe over which the creator does not shout and proclaim mine. It is all his. And what you have to understand about your life and your economy and your purpose and your relationships with unbelievers is it's all God's. God owns it all. And he will leverage all of it for his glory. Second thing that I want you to note from uh, this text is that the house of God is not just for the people in it. Okay, because here's where Solomon is going. Here's what the purpose of the temple is. The purpose of the temple is to be attractive and fragrant and beautiful so that, so that non-Jews, non-Israelites come, see it, smell it, behold it, admire it, and come into it. This is why you've got to see yourself, Christian, not as a second-class citizen, not as a purposeless member of society, but as someone whom God has called to build a house for his sake so that other people can see your life and want to join your movement in Christ. Look what it says in Isaiah 56, verse 6. It says this, um, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath, who does not profane. My name, he goes on there. He says, <clears throat> They will bring to my holy mountain and make these sacrifices. Uh, they will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. Look at this line. This should be very familiar to us as New Testament saints. 
For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This is a New Testament text big time because when Jesus goes into the temple and makes a whip and chases out all the money changers and the people selling doves, he didn't have a problem with the economy of selling doves. He didn't have a problem with the money changers. He needed to make exchange for money and exchange for the doves. He had a problem with the fact that they were in the temple taking up room where the Gentiles should have come in and experienced the glory of God in dwelling with his people Israel. Jesus' problem with the temple population that day was that all them, all the money makers were, were using the place, the house of God, for their own advancement instead of to be attractive to unbelievers. And that is such an important point for us. You're called to the purposes of God, but your purpose is to beautify the house of God, even in your life and in your local church and in your family, to make that house attractive to non-believers. That's what Solomon is here for. That's what his calling in God is. The promise of Abraham being fulfilled here, Abraham, uh, Abraham's promise in Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and kid He says, I'll make a great nation of you. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. Look at verse three. I will bless those who bless you. And to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is God's desire for the world, that the world will see God's people and they will be attracted to it. And because they will be attracted to it, they will hopefully come and they will hear the gospel. They will be changed. They'll be transformed. They will be renewed in their minds and they will become part of the house of God. This is your calling. This is your purpose. This is your prophetic destiny if you are a child of God. So I got a question for you. What are you giving your life for? Are you building your house or are you building his house? Are you seeing yourself like this? Are you seeing that you have a prophetic destiny and divine appointment from God in Christ Jesus? The people who came before you were part of that story and the people around you now, whether they believe it or not, are also part of that story and you are called in God to beautify his house, including your own body, including your own family, so that other people can see the glory of God through you and be attracted to God because of you. This is what God saw. Uh, this is how God used Joseph. He was attractive to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh saw him, he said, I can't, I can't believe how, how anointed this kid is. Let's put him in my administration and have him rule the whole kingdom except for me, right? This is how Dave, Daniel was seen. Nebuchadnezzar sees Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He tests them. They're, they're great. They're prosperous. They're, they're smart. They're, they're brilliant. He says, come in and, and be right here by my side. You're 10 times better than all of my other administration officials. That's how God saw, I mean, that's how Darius saw Daniel. That's how Belshazzar saw, saw Daniel. It's how the world should see the church. The church should not be a thorn in the world's side. Um, the church should be attractive to the world um, so that the world hears the goodness of God through us. Now, that being said, the world will never agree with a lot of things that we believe. There's many things where we're going to diverge from the values and the systems of the world. But by and large, our relationships with the world should be healthy, should be beneficial for them to see God's goodness in and through us. So don't argue with people. Don't get angry with people. They're unbelievers. They're supposed to live that way. We are Christians. We are following him and we are here to lead others to him. So here's the truth though. Um, you are his house. So the good news about all of this is that when you give yourself to building God's house, guess what? you're giving yourself to building you. 
<laughs> that, that, that's the most powerful point that I could make today. Some of you are like, I don't want to give all that stuff to the church. I don't want to put all my life in the church. You know, the church should just be Sunday and then I'll just do my, my thing Monday through Saturday. No, you are the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. And building the church is also building you. And, and having good relationships with believers is building you. And getting into the word of God is building you. And hearing God's voice through the word is building you. That's the beauty of this. When you give yourself to God's house, you're giving yourself to your own benefit because you are that house. There is a parable that Jesus shares in Luke chapter 12. It's the parable of the rich man that had a land that produced plentifully. Jesus says this in Luke 12, 16. And in verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones. I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, drink, be merry. Look, verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And then look at the question. And the things that you have prepared, the things that you have prepared for yourself, whose will they be? In other words, are you living beyond you or are you living just for yourself? Just notice how many of these personal pronouns, I, 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 he thought to himself, I, 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 my, 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 I will say to my soul, you have, you know, that's not the point of life. That is a very sad life to have so much and to keep it all for yourself, to live with this bounty, but not to be a blessing. You are, if you're a Christian, you are blessed to be a blessing. Your life is ultimately not about you. Your life is about Christ. Your life is for the reflection of his glory and his grace and his mercy in your life and through your life so that other people will see you and like Hiram to Solomon will value you and will appreciate you and then will help you, will honor you as you honor God. Okay, tap into truth. A couple of things I want to leave you with guys today is this, that you have a prophetic calling. And your prophetic calling is to be co-workers in the building of God's house so that the nations might know him. If you are a young person, I cannot stress this enough, get a hold of this now when you're young. Uh, because no matter what you end up doing in life, if this is the foundation of who you are, it will shape your, the rest of your life in such a healthy way. You've got to look at your life, your, your marriage, your significant other, your, your singleness, your money, your job. Okay, God, this is yours. And I know that I'm ultimately not called just to be a great um, lawyer, doctor, school teacher, principal, whatever you want to say you're going to become. I know ultimately I am here to be your house. I'm here to be a reflection of your glory so that others might know you. God, I give you my life. I am your house. Build me so that I might build your house and bring others to you. What a way to live. What a divine and prophetic calling. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, and I want to, I want to point that one out right there, for God by the spirit. So in Christ, the true son of David, you are being built where? Together into a dwelling place, not for you, for God, by the Spirit. When other people see that in you, they will be drawn to it. This is what you are. You are, by the way, just like Solomon's house that he built for God was expensive with the dressed stone and the costly stone and the, and the, and, and the, and the cedar imported from Lebanon. 
you are costly. But you are not costly with stone and cedar. You are costly because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you to make you part of God's house. I, my heart goes out to so many people today for this message because we see just an overwhelming lack of purpose in our generation, an overwhelming lack of what is my life about? And the Bible, the scriptures, even this very obtuse, if you will, I hate to put that name on the scripture, but this obtuse ver- uh, chapter of the Bible speaks to our purpose. And it's, and it's beautiful. There's a verse that I want to leave you with too before we go on the Bible, Cam, and that is this. Proverbs 29, 18, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no prophetic vision, another translation says, when people can't see what God is doing, they lose all sense of self. And, I, and what this is saying is basically this. You've got to get a hold of a vision for your life. You've got to get a hold of a prophetic calling of your life or you will give your life and years and maybe decades to things that don't matter, that look like they are the path to happiness, but they are ultimately empty. So you as God's house, child of God, build his house, be a part of this process. This is the wisest way to live. Let me leave you with this, uh, let me leave this talk with adding to our list because we've been talking about what wisdom looks like through Solomon. And we said it was selfless serving, giving a couple weeks ago. Then last time we were together, administering, using your gift to administer God's purposes through you. Let me add this last one. Number five, discipling. Wisdom looks like this, that you use your life to lead others to Christ, making disciples of others so that Christ might be known in all the earth. I would like to do one last thing, and I want to leave you today with a poem. It's written by C.T. Studd. He was part of a group of seven men from Cambridge University in the 1800s who felt the call of God through Hudson Taylor, a great missionary to China, to leave all of their comforts and go overseas and bring the gospel to China. His name was C.T. Studd. And he writes this beautiful poem. It's called Only One Life. And I want to read some of the lines to you in closing. It says, Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clay I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to stay. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Oh, let my love and fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, "'Twas worth it all. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be, if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's a powerful poem. It's a powerful poem, and it's 
an important lesson for us today. This life is very confusing without Christ. And when you know him, you know not only has he brought you peace with God, forgiveness of sins, but he's also given you a purpose for living, a future. And there will be ups and downs and bumps, but you can know as you give your life more and more to beautifying his house, which is you, which is you and the family of God that God puts you in, it's going to bring the world to Jesus. And there is no greater privilege in this world than to be a part of that. Guys, thanks for joining me today. I hope that this content blessed you. Support the channel. I'm offering to all those who support the channel with any amount of money, a free digital copy of the first chapter of my book, Coming Out Soon, Ending Emptiness. If you're a monthly supporter, you're already going to get the full free copy, the printed copy. I call you guys the deep endables, uh, but you can support the channel through cash app or timhatchlive.com slash support. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for your time. Thanks for all that you guys do to make this channel what it is. It's an absolute pleasure to bring this content to you. God bless you. Have a great Wednesday night. Uh -huh.